Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday.
Hello and welcome to Legends Live. I'm Trev Downey and I'm very, very pleased to be glad and happy and thankful to be joined by Steve McMahon and Jan Mulby for this very special event today, Celebrating the Reds. We have uh, a strange setup where we're all talking to each other via this lovely, lovely link up and um, we've got some questions from our subscribers. Uh, I'm here as usual in my field in beautiful rural Ireland. The lads are in their own homes and we've got a question right out the gap. To get us going here, lads, um, I'm just going to go straight into it because we've about 45 minutes. And Eddie Gibbs, who you'll both be familiar with, was wondering, what did you think about the Bundesliga matches at the weekend? He says, I was initially against superficial sound being pumped into the stadiums behind closed doors. But after watching uh, and getting a feel for the home uh, crowd and uh, anthems and chants and perhaps drum music would be a welcome addition. Would that help, Does, do you think, or would that hinder the players? Now, we were having a little natter about this, lads, just before the mics and cameras went live. So I'm going to start with Jan and then go to Steve for your takes on this. What do you think about that? First of all, did you get to see it? And second of all, do you think would there be any addition to having some artificial sound, some music, some fan noise, or would that just be an embarrassment, do you think, Jan? Well, I did get to see some of it. Uh, obviously, the two Thursday games, I uh, we, we had the three games, the, the choice of the three, and I flicked through them a bit. Dortmund against Schalke, uh, very one side. And then, of course, Leipzig. And the reason that I watched Leipzig was Timo Werner. I had a little look at how he was faring. Uh, I, I think when, should the Premier League start and Liverpool play behind closed doors, I still think you'll get a different feel than what you did being neutral watching the Bundesliga game. So, it's either we find a way the players have to find a way of generate their own energy in the stadiums and maybe you at home and your front room have to do exactly the same. But I would be for a trial run of maybe some noise and some sound, uh, you know, especially when teams are attacking or shots on goal and whatever. Uh, but it's a bit like VAR, isn't it, Trevor? Eventually we will find a way of coping because it's the only thing we've got at the moment. And I don't think we're prepared to, to throw football under the bus. You know, I think we want to watch it so I think we have to find a way. Yeah, that's exactly it, man. Isn't it? We've just got to got to improvise and go. Steve, what about yourself? I mean, what, how do you feel about this idea of, um, you know, a background noise and and sort of artificial atmosphere pumped into the stadium to sort of help make it less, uh, I don't know, sort of dead and ghostly when, when you're watching the game? Uh, not for me. I've got to say, I think both Jan and I have brought up obviously uh, professional footballers and wanting to play in front of fifty thousand wanting to play for Liverpool United and, and Ajax, as, as Jan has. And there's nothing like that atmosphere in the bus. You cannot, it's impossible for anybody to recreate what the sound is in the atmosphere at Anfield or Old Trafford or, or indeed anywhere, Stamford Bridge. It's impossible. How can you do it without making a false? 
again, I think it's impossible. Noises from the, from the side. Um, there's, there's pictures up of, of the supporters. It's still not the same. Mm. It looked like it was a pre-season friendly match at training ground. Okay. Reserves against first team. And it was so surreal that you, you're watching a, a, a top quality division, the Bundesliga, um, live without any supporters there. It was, it was surreal. Now, we're going to be having it sooner rather than later, I think, in the Premier League. And I can't see myself watching Liverpool and getting that excited. I know they've got two games before they win the league, but we want Liverpool to win the league with, with 50,000, 55,000 supporters there. Cheering Liverpool's every move and, and to watch it live at the, at the stadium. It's just going to be so different and awkward to actually witness that. And not for me, not for me, I'm sorry. Uh, I could watch, I could be watching any league in the world when I switch on. There's no crowd there or nothing. Yeah, I have to listen, I think an awful lot of people are in the same boat. And I think we're all in agreement that any sort of football is better than nothing. But yeah, there's something very, very artificial about it at the moment. And, and just I need to get this question out of the way before I go into the questions from the subscribers, because it's it's relevant. We're hoping that the Bundesliga will continue. Uh, we're hoping that the Premier League's on course to continue, but who knows what will happen. So again, I just have a quick question for you that I want to get out there because I want to get your opinions uh, on record for our, our, uh, our subscribers and our viewers and our listeners. Um, if the league were to get wrapped up in some way other than finishing out the entirety of the programme and the games, like it's been done in several other places. And Jan, I've asked you this recently. Um, I'll go back to you straight away with it. Would you be happy enough to take uh, the victory in any form, whether they go points per game? Or would you would you give a damn about the little asterisks that will necess- uh, necessarily be beside it? I mean, basically, will you take a league win in any way that it's awarded at this stage? Well, I think in, in Liverpool's case, you certainly wouldn't be embarrassed about accepting uh, winning the, the, the Premier League. You know, it's it, it's been so dominant from from the first day of the season until uh, we unfortunately had to stop playing. So, in terms of that, that's never going to be an issue. Nobody's ever going to question that. There'll be some Manchester United fans, uh, but I think even deep down, everybody knows that there's only one champion. It's the rest that worries me, uh, and how you would settle it. I don't, I don't know how you would find a way of setting things unless. Everybody plays 38 games. So let's just keep our fingers crossed. I know what Steve said before, but it's all we've got, isn't it, Trevor? We haven't got anything else. This is all we've got, football behind closed doors. We have to find a way of falling in love with it. Yeah, fingers crossed it will happen. Steve, again, just the the question is, say it doesn't. Say, you know, we get back into it and we have to stop or wrap it up or maybe it just never happens in the start uh, and they decide to wrap up the league in some arbitrary fashion and give it award the title to the Reds. Are you taking it? Do, do Do you feel it's a lesser title because of that? It's not a lesser title. I think Liverpool won the league two months ago. It was over. Yeah. I was saying that every time I went to the game and every time I was meeting, greeting people. Is that the league is over. It's finished. And the only problem is there's a, an asterisk, as you said, alongside it. I, we should never, and we, we shouldn't start next season without finishing this season. Whenever it may be, if it's two or three months when, when the virus is finished and when we've got a, a vaccine or, or a cure for the next season should not start until this season is finished whatever way they want to manufacture that I'm not imagine Jan made a good point about the relegation that's probably more important than, than actually because uh, there's no promotion obviously it's just the, just the title winners in Champions League um, you could leave it the way it is at the minute for Champions League and for the, for the league winners relegation is the biggest issue if I'm Aston Villa I played for Aston Villa 
I'm Aston Villa. I'm, I'm in the relegation zone at the moment. But I have a game in hand. And it's, it's feasible that you can win that game and then jump right out of the, of the relegation zone. You stop it now and put the bottom three teams down. But what does that mean? That means it's rubbish. Absolute nonsense. Because anyone, and we've seen it with West Brom, the great escape West Brom had many years ago, you can make a good run for it. You can have a, a good end to season. Bolton Wanderers did it in Big Sam, and so did um, Sunderland with Big Sam as well, where they were unbelievable towards the end of the season. What's stopping, especially if a team like Liverpool has already won the league, they're going to start playing it, the youngsters. They're going to try, start putting half a team out. That gives the bottom teams a, a greater opportunity of, of getting them three points. So it's, it's a bit unfair. It's an unfair advantage, especially playing behind closed doors. Get it up and running. Everybody plays the 38 games. Let's do it proper and let's finish the season off as best we can. Cancel the Euros next season. They've, they've put back the Euros. Why? Cancel it. Cancel the domestic competition next year, the FA Cup and the Caribou Cup. Top teams are taking no notice of the FA Cup anyway. There's been an uproar over the years about taking it seriously. Cancel it for one year. Cancel the Caribou Cup for one year. Cancel if you need to be the, the European Championships for, for, for 2020. So that didn't exist. So all of the domestic leagues can catch up. Mm. And then everybody then starts afresh when it's fit and able to. I like it. I like it. Uh, we're going to get straight into the questions then from our subscribers. Um, first up is Phil Bartz. I'm going to stay with you, Steve, for a second to get this set up because Phil says, we heard Steve's thoughts on the Vinnie Jones 1988 Cup final tackle a few times. Most recently, I think me, myself and yourself had a chat about that in our interview. Um, you know, you were pretty much there live at the, at the time and uh, <laughs> he saw it. Uh, he, I want you just to set us up. Uh, by letting us uh, know what what sort of an impact, and reminding people who didn't maybe hear the interview you and I did, what sort of an impact do you think it had on the performance? Because there was a lot of talk about that at the time, and your opinions were pretty much straightforward. But I'm going to ask you to set it up, and then I'm going to get a response from Jan on it as well. I mean, it was no surprise that Vinnie Jones was going to come out of the blocks, because that's what he, that was what he was all about. He's an aggressive, he was trying to upset the opposition. And it just so happens... The ball came to me first, or almost. And he was coming towards me, Vinnie Jones. But I read it. I read the situation. I knew what he was going to do. And I rode, this, I, I rode it. So I, m- I made sure I wasn't flat-footed so he could do any damage. Uh, so once I'm up in the air and uh, I, f- I come down, I accidentally on purpose elbow in the, in the, above the eye. Somewhere. So he gets up. A fair play. I get up. We run away. No problem. But to say that Vinnie Jones actually won the game for Wimbledon by doing that challenge. is nonsensical. It was in the first minute of an FA Cup game. And, and Jan, I remember it, and Aldo was the first uh, player to miss a penalty. Peter Beasley had a, a perfectly good goal disallowed. Um, they won it on the day, and they won it from a set piece. And you can't say it was Vinnie Jones's tackle on me that actually defined the game. It didn't. Nonsense. And... Um, Vinnie Jones was there, as I said before, just to do a job. And if he believes in that, and the team believed that that was the the, the point, then that's up to them. At the end of the day, they won they won the FA Cup, and teams do get a bit of luck, and teams do get the run of the the, the ball. They deserved it on the day. They got it right. You know, we, we just didn't perform the way we probably should have done. Um, 
But at the end of the day, we were still good enough to, to win the cup. But we didn't do it. That's the FA Cup for you. Yeah, and I, I'm going to imagine you're going to row in behind Steve's opinion on this. Did you feel it had any impact in the game at all, or would you dismiss it the same way as he did? I, I, I don't mind giving Wimbledon credit for winning the FA Cup because that was an amazing achievement as far as they were concerned. But the things that they want to be given credit for, I can't give them credit for. So when they say, we sagged them out in the tunnel, I go, bullshit. Vinnie Jones to tackle on Mac in the first minute, won in the game, I go, bullshit, yeah? They got lucky. And being lucky is part of playing football. I fully accept that. But Steve mentioned Peter Beatty's goal. Peter Beatty scores that goal. We win that game 3 or 4 nil. Of that, I have very, very little doubt. So they got lucky. And I said before, it's, 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 it's part of the game, isn't it? So give him credit for getting to the final and beating, which at the time was the best team in the country by a mile. But the things that they want to make a big deal at, this sort of special atmosphere they had and what they did, I can't give him any credit for. Us guys... We'd seen and done it all over the world. We weren't going to be worried about playing Wimbledon or Wembley. Please believe me. That's without being big-headed, isn't it? So, give him credit for winning. But they didn't psych us out. And it, it, it wasn't about, yes, of course, it was a typical Vinnie Jones, but I don't think that put Steve off his game in any way, shape or form. It was a couple of things that we used to say. Hello. Go ahead, Hello. Go ahead, Steve. Yeah. yeah. Either... Yeah,ก็เห็นมั้ยเฮ้ยนะอันนี้สร้างเรื่องที่ว่าเฮ้ยนะอันนี้สร้างเรื่องที่ว่าเฮ้ยนะอันนี้สร้างเรื่องที่
Um, Peter Reid at Everton was a fierce competitor. Uh, he seems to get better the older he got, Reedy. He got injuries when he was younger, but he, he got better as he, as he matured a little bit. Um, but we had a number of players. Gaza was just coming to the fore. Gaza was a sensational player. I so what about Gaza? Maka? What about Gaza when we beat him 3 1 down the right side lane? And he started crying almost. And he started yeah. crying, you know, what's that all about? <laughs> well, he accidentally, see, he was chomping accidentally. at the Accidentally, don't use that word. Accidentally. <laughs> Please accidentally. don't. Not with you. Accidentally, <laughs> on purpose. Accidentally, on purpose. <laughs> exactly. So, the, the funny thing is, on that occasion, the, I had the ball, and, and the referee the referee had already blown a whistle. And Gaza was like a dog with a bone, chomping, chomping. And I kept fending him off. Get away. And I kept. The more he came, the, more, the harder it went. And all of a sudden, he, he's cracked his nose. And the referee, all of a sudden, he's, he's blown and deferred the whistle. And he turns around, he's blood, it's blood everywhere. Claret. He's bleeding from, from everywhere. And he, he's just tearing his eye again, as, as he usually does with Gaza. But it was his own fault, because he wouldn't stop. <laughs> the whistle had gone. <laughs> it was his own fault for messing with yeah, his own <laughs> <laughs> Mess with the big boys, and you know that. Listen, listen Macca. Who was on page one in your black book? I didn't have one, but you must have had one. I didn't. I didn't have a black book, honestly. The only time that, that rankled with me was the Vinnie Jones, when because he kept spouting that, basically it was him that changed the course of that cup final. It was him that got got Wimbledon going. It was him that destroyed the passion and commitment that we had as a team. That was, in to use your word, bullshit, because that was not the case. That wasn't the case as as, as it went on to, to show. And it, it was only, and I never did, I, I never did that. And, and the night before we played them at Anfield, about six months later, six months, uh, three days, two hours and twenty four <laughs> seconds, <laughs> roughly. So you roughly. got over it. Yeah, and I just remember thinking, if there's an opportunity at some stage, he's having it. He's having it. Yeah. And. Again, I don't know where, I think it was 14 minutes, 14 seconds into the game, roughly. And an opportunity came about, and it bounced. And, and from the edge of the box, it bounces out. And I'm thinking, happy birthday, it couldn't have, couldn't have, it couldn't have gone any better. It couldn't have sat any better for me and Vinny, because Vinny couldn't go backwards to what sometimes he, he would do. And he had to come forward to me, and the ball bounced lovely, and I thought, That's it. oh, it's amazing. I won't get another opportunity here. Bang. And it's been sent to me many, many times on the video, the YouTube video. It goes down like a sack of spuds. But what you see on the video is he jumps back up again, like a spring. He's up again. And the video cuts and stops. If he carries on for another five seconds, you see him going down again. And he doesn't return. That's all I'll say on the matter. <laughs> <laughs> Job done. The referee is only oh. five yards away as well. No yellow card, nothing. A legitimate tackle. Legitimate tackle. A total different change of pace here, Jan. This one's for you, Steve. Oh, P again. <laughs> Steve is wondering uh, why was Ronnie Whelan nicknamed Dusty, uh, and was there any other nicknames that we may not have heard of before? You and I spoke about uh, about Stevie Nichols' nickname on a recent show. Uh, what was that all about, Ronnie Whelan's nickname? Do you remember? No, I don't, because I, I believe he had the nickname before I came. Uh, and I actually think that Maka would probably be, be, although he wasn't there either when he got the nickname, but, but Maka spent a lot more time with Ronnie and, 
uh, up in Southport. So go on, Matthew, you've got to help me out here. I mean, Steve Little's got a hundred. Yeah, everybody's got stupid nicknames. Ronnie Williams, yeah. Vich as well, the Vich. Yeah. Just, but Dustin, where did that go? Dustin Vich, I think it's a Russian thing when he went and played a team in Russia. Oh, okay. I think it's something to do with Dustovich. Yeah, yeah. Ah, okay. So stupid, honestly. The nicknames well, are players. But to be fair, you were in charge of nicknames, weren't you? Yeah, I was. I, well, I, you know, if I say Modo, you know exactly who I'm talking about, don't you? I know. Or if he, I used I... he used to run his shirt with a walk. Are, are you going to let us in on any of the nicknames? That was, were there people who were beyond nicknames? For example, when Kenny was Gaffer, was he beyond the nickname? No, no, I think he was Golden Balls because that's what he was. <laughs> Before he became Gaffer, everybody knew him as Golden Balls. Oh, it's magic. <laughs> Hansen is typical. Oh, he's jockey. He's Scottish jockey, jockey yeah. Hansen. So you yeah. get where that's coming from. Gary Gillespie, Dizzy. Now, I don't know where that's coming from. Yeah. Dizzy Gillespie. Yeah, it's the musician. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. What about, what, what about, what about was, Bushy? Tosh. Tosh. Tosh, yeah. was Tosh, Tosh. Yeah. Yeah. He's not like Toshak, but they call it Tosh. It was like, <laughs> like John Barnes, obviously. It was Digger, you know, from Dallas. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. That's what yeah. it is, Digger Barnes. And I had a nickname, and I'm, I'm Billy. Even now, all the players call me Billy. And Billy was... It was, a, it was a golf day that we had, a charity golf day in Leeds, and everybody's with the building societies and big banks and big organisations. And my sponsor of my team was Billy Ingham and friends. And his friends are about four foot three. Billy Ingham was the biggest at four foot eight. And all his friends were, 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 were dwarfs. And, and it just stuck with everybody, all the players. And I was from... That day onwards, I was Billy because the sponsor was Billy Ingham. Silly and all, people don't know, but that's the way it football. That's it. It didn't take a lot, Trev. It didn't take a lot. What about you? Did you have one yourself, Jan? Well, what would you say, Mark? A Yankee, that was about as far as he got, wasn't it? Yankee. Yankees, it, it, it's, yeah, it's a yeah, bet. Ah, uh, okay. I was okay. into betting as well. It's, it's a bet, isn't it? And, uh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay, yeah. I'm sure Steve and the Southport Mafia that they would have other nicknames for all those boys living over on the Whittle. But uh... <laughs> we used to have yeah, we used to have the Whittle boys and, and Southport boys. Yeah. Uh, very interesting. Didn't like each other. No. Southport <laughs> Mafia. Well, we better we better move on before we get into some dodgy territory. I've got one one, one last question from Steve for both of you. Uh, just have a quick think about this. All I really need is a name. He says, if suddenly football was allowed eleven outfield players um, uh, uh, plus the keeper to make twelve, which do you think? Which of the lads who you played with would you like to add to this current Liverpool team that would really complement them? If you take so so, let's just let's just let's even take the maths out of it. What what former colleague of yours do you think could really fit in well with this current red setup? I'll start with you, Jan, on this one. I think it's a really difficult one, isn't it? I mean, I think if you if you if you look and uh, you know, obviously John Barnes would get into any Liverpool team. Alan Hansen would be perfectly suited to play the game the way that it's played today. But I just think that with the chances that we create and with the way that Firmino plays. I just think sometimes when I look at this team and I'm I'm just seeing a team that's desperate for a Ian Russ, a John Aldridge, a Robbie Fowler, 
that sort of six-yard goal scorer. So, so I would say that Ian Russ in this team, uh, he certainly wouldn't score less than what he what he used to. That's for sure, and he would be totally different to the way that the front three plays. So I think it'll be a nice addition. Yeah, and as we said recently on the show, you and I certainly got through the work as well, Rushy, in terms of that Bobby Firmino work rate. That's nice, I like that. Steve, if you could add someone to the current setup from your former teammates, who would, who would it be? Uh, apart from the enemy self, um, yeah. I think Rushy is probably the best suited to, to that. Defend them from the front and the press, because Rushy was, was the best at it. And, and and we were at the time because we did press from the front. And when Rushy went and closed the defender down, we all went. So the current situation, the way Rushy played, he not just a goal scorer, his his work rate and he's pressing, and he's, he's the first man to, to to close down. So I think Rushy would would stand up. I would reverse the question, Greg. I'd actually say how many of the players would get on our side? Who would who would make our side better? Go on then, answer your own question, Steve. Well, it's difficult because who would replace Rushy in, in the current side? Nobody. Who would replace John Barnes in the current side? Mo Salah? I don't think so. I don't think so. Who would replace Alan Hansen? Matip? don't think so. Van Dijk, maybe, alongside Hansen. You know, there's Alisson in goal, I suppose. You know, Brucey wasn't a bad keeper, mind you, but, but Alisson maybe at this moment in time. You're not, talking, you're not telling me Steve Nichol wouldn't get in as one of the fullbacks left or right. Of course he would. 100%. You've got Jan sitting there. You've got Ronnie Whelans. You, you know, you, you're talking about Aldo. You, you're talking about Peter Beasley's at the time. That's in Mane's, you think? I mean, it's debatable. It is. But we still had seven, I'd say six, at least seven, that were actually getting aside now. Yeah. yeah so I how, think many, it... how many of the side now would get an side? For me, is, a, is, a, is a probably a better question. I like it. I like it. Nice to flip it. Um, this is from Steve W for you, uh, Steve. So I'll stay with you and then I'll come back to one for Jan from Steve as well. Uh, so this question for you, Steve, is how did the team spirit in the tournament in a tournament like Italian 90 compared to, say, the Liverpool squad in 87, 88? Can international squads, Steve is wondering here, ever really bond the way club squads can? No. 100% no. The, the club bond is very, very special. You're there every day, every other day. You're with people, you're playing your game on the Saturdays and Tuesdays and training with each other. It's your second family. International is totally different. Um, although I was proud and privileged to play for England in the World Cup Finals and Euros in, in 88, I didn't enjoy really going away and staying for long periods of time. It was it was difficult. You know, you, you, you're batting the hell out of each other on a Saturday or a Tuesday. And then you've got to meet up with the players. Your Nottingham Forest players, your Man United players, your Everton players, your Arsenal players. That is just beaten probably 3 and 4 nil. usually was the case. And you've got to try and be nice to them. And, you, and, and there's little groups of people everywhere. So you didn't get that and you couldn't. It, it, Liverpool especially was a unique type of atmosphere in the dressing room. It was together. If there was anything going on, you didn't need the manager. You didn't need Kenny to come and tell you. The players sorted out themselves, which was the art, and I think that's been over a period of time. Liverpool's success is that nobody w- would would get away with anything because the players were the first on 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 the case, and they would sort it, and we would sort it in the dressing room. We didn't need the manager. The players would do that, and I think that was the uh, a very uh, special bond that we had in, uh, amongst the Liverpool players. 
Yeah, and this one from Steve for you, from Steve W, is in your hat trick of penalties against Coventry, did the pressure increase with each one, thinking the keeper knew what you were going to do by the third one, or maybe if there was another one to come against them the following week or whatever? That pressure, do you recall that building? I know we've spoken about this before, but there'll be a lot of people who haven't heard you talk on that topic. I think it would be easy to say that with every penalty, I felt the pressure increase, but I actually didn't. With, with every penalty uh, that night, I, I almost felt it was it was easier uh, because I thought that if he was going to do something else, by, and by him I mean their goalkeeper Steve Grisovitz, I, I think he would he would do things earlier than he would normally do, and that would give me the advantage anyway. But I always had a feeling that obviously I didn't know there was going to be three penalties, but but as I went through the penalties, I always felt that he thought. There's going to be every chance at some stage he's going to go to the goalkeeper's right. And I always felt that that's what he's thinking and I'm just going to keep going to his left. So I have to say that with every penalty, he actually became more and more comfortable. Uh, and certainly with the third one, it didn't even cross my mind that, A, he was going to go the way I was going to put the ball that I, that I even was going to, was going to miss. Uh, so, yeah, in, in, I think sometimes when you just take one penalty, it can be different. But with it being three on the night, I think it actually helped me. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> Steve, back to you, because we've got to get through these. This is from Dean Ballantyne from the El Riki uh, Reds in Edinburgh, a lovely spot I've been to recently. And uh, the question for you, Steve, is if you could relive any one of your days playing against Everton, which game would you choose and why? He says for him, the straight thunderbolt shot in 85 was right up there. Uh, if you could relive a moment against Everton, then what would it be, Steve, for you? It's difficult. Scoring goals against Everton... Uh... Became a bit of a, a, a knack for me, I suppose. I mean, it always seems to get a goal against Everton. Probably my first game back. I'd only just, uh, I was a new kid on the block for Liverpool, and it's my third game in for Liverpool. And it was at Goodison. It was away at Goodison. It was my third game in. And knowing how the, the Everton supporters and the Everton people did, took a, a dislike to me because of my history with Everton and whatever, I. They thought it was going to be very difficult for me to turn up at Goodison and try and perform. The, the opposite, as I said before, I thrived on that, that buzz and the adrenaline and, and the bigger the game, the better. So I think my first game back at Goodison, for Liverpool, we win the game 3-2. I end up scoring a winning goal, what turned out to be the winning goal. So that actually set me on the road to my career at Liverpool because once you... People were thinking, will he be the same when he comes back, plays for Liverpool against Everton? And indeed, I went from strength to strength. And that game and that goal, I would say, set me on the path to my Liverpool career because I never looked back after that. Like that. Uh, Jan, this is one from the same group of guys, the El Riki Reds, this time from Barry McGuigan. Uh, I'm sure it's not that Barry McGuigan that I'll remember from Ireland. Anyway, he says, which three players from the entire Premier League area of any club would have improved any Liverpool team that you were part of? So if you could pick three from any uh, any other, uh, any any players from Premier League era, which three would you like to have played with, let's say, in any of those Liverpool sides you were with? Well, I think in, in, in the sort of mid-90s, uh, when the Premier League was up and running and there was a, a big influence of, of, of foreign players than, than we'd ever seen. And, you know, I think the first sort of foreign players that, that, that you really took notice of was the likes of Dennis Bergkamp and Thierry Henry at, at, at Arsenal. They were just so different 
uh, to people that you've previously seen. Uh, Steve briefly mentioned before with, with, with the goalkeeper and Bruce Grobelan. You know, Bruce was a fantastic goalkeeper, but I, but I think over the years there's been some exceptionally goalkeepers in, in, in the Premier League. Uh, so I think there's a number of those goalkeepers who, who would probably be a slight improvement on on Bruce and, you know, Alisson being, being one of them. Uh, so I would like to pick uh, a, a goalkeeper. I was going to say Peter Smeichel, but I won't get away with that. Uh, it's not enough he's Danish, Trevor, is it? Because he played completely for the, for the wrong team, isn't it? So a Peter Cech at his absolute, I think, would, would make us a better team. And then, you know, I, I, I couldn't look much further than Dennis Bergkamp and, 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 and Thierry Henry. Uh, you know, I think they would improve. They would have improved any team back then and even today. Fantastic players. And just one more for you from the same man, wondering uh, how delighted were you when it turned out that there was actual footage of your best goal, your last goal, in fact, as people thought it was against Man United, then it turned up. I've seen that most weeks recently, and it's it's doing the rounds. It's good to see it. Yeah, I mean, it was it was obviously, it, 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 the legend sort of grew and grew and grew when people, all people had was the memory of either being at the game and it was 42,000 on the night or listening on the radio. Uh, the legend grew and grew and grew and then one day a video appeared and everybody could then see it. I don't know whether that's a good thing or a bad thing because now everybody goes, oh, is that it? And some people do say, is that it? Where really? most people go. Yeah, some people do, they go, is that it? But I think the, the whole key with it was Bob Paisley who described the goal at the end of the season and he said, you know, to win the ball inside your own half and run through and still have that power, that was what impressed him more than anything. Isn't it? So, but it's, it, it is what it is. is but, but, but believe me, it's much easier the fact that the goal is out there. People can see it and make up their own mind. Now, we've got a few here from Eddie. And one for you, Steve, from uh, Eddie Gibbs is uh, you've said before that you gave away all the playing shirts. That's actually, you mentioned that in our interview, that you gave away most of the shirts from your career over the years. Uh, if there was just one match you could have kept a shirt from, what would it have been? Oh, difficult. Um, very, very difficult one. I never thought about it until I finished. Um, right. I've never been asked that question before. But um, we've, we've had, to be fair, we never got two shirts when we were playing for domestic, when we were playing for Liverpool. You do now. One to swap, one to keep. Um, so we'd have had a, a wardrobe full of opposition shirts. Gianluca Vialli, I swapped shirts with, uh, when we played for England against Italy at Wembley. And, not just shirts, it was shorts and socks and everything else apart from the jockstrap. Um, <laughs> so, so Gianluca, probably uh, Zola, I'd have loved to have uh, got a, a Zola shirt because uh, at the time he was magnificent. And played against Didier Deschamps, you know, I didn't get a shirt. I'd like to have got a Deschamps shirt because he was like fantastic. Very unassuming, a bit like a Ronnie Whelan type player, but magnificent for a team. Um, same as Dunga um, wonderful uh, players but, but again difficult I never thought about it at the time too many players this day and age think about what shirt they're going to get before the game it never entered my mind about oh I want to try and make sure and in fact it, it's been known that people are saying before the game is it okay can I get your shirt for me I, I, I don't believe in it you play the game you try and win the game and then you see what what pickings you've got yeah. First one to you, and it could be a substitution, it could be anything, but yeah, it's almost an player. 
nowadays they're picking whose shirt they want. In fact, they, they're probably ringing each other up, can I have your shirt? You can have mine, I have yours. And that's the way the game is. But I never thought about it at all. Yeah. <laughs> I say you're right with those phone calls, you know. Yeah, uh, uh, and one for you, another one. The penalty questions are haunting you tonight. This is from Eddie too. He says, uh, when you were... What was that? He never scored any... Uh, any other goals apart from penalties? <laughs> are, you, are you sure about that, Macca? <laughs> well, maybe the Man United one. Give us a bit on the one, yeah. Come on now. Uh, anyway, uh, Eddie asks you, Jan, when you weren't playing towards the end of 94 uh, that season, uh, Julian Dix was taking penalties ahead of Robbie Fowler. Uh, did you rate both of those lads from the spot um, in terms of, um, you know, being up to the task? No. Shut <laughs> When I played with Johan Cruyff, and I'm sure we've discussed this before, one of the things he said that always stuck in my mind, don't ever let left-footed players take penalties. And that's always stuck in my mind. He said they're too easy to read, and if they go the other way, they open up their body too much. He said they're too easy to read. So I'm sure Robbie Fowler's penalty record is half-decent, as is Julian Dix. But no, I never feel comfortable when a left-footer takes a penalty. Sorry. And that includes John Barnes. You know, John Barnes, great player, but... Not a very good penalty record. I like it. That's contra- controversial, a little bit of left-footist commentary yeah, there. Like, uh, like. <laughs> I've won for both of you from um, from Eddie, too, uh, to finish off his little bundle. And Steve, I'll go to you first. Um, he says, we often hear about how powerful agents are in the game. And uh, he's wondering how empowered did you make your agents during your careers and did you ever feel let down, perhaps, by decisions they made on your behalf? Um, so the question is basically about how you feel about agents in the modern game um, and compare it and contrast it with your uh, own career. And did you did you ever feel like you perhaps gave your agent a little bit too much power or were you ever disappointed by them? So, Steve, I'll start with you on that. Uh, well, I, I used an agent once, and that was uh, Dennis Roach, when, when I, my possibility of me going to Sampdoria because he was the master of, of the, the, at the time, the European clubs, and he would get players from from the English league to play in Europe. And he was the master agent then at the time. And I'd, I'd agreed a deal with uh, Sampdoria when my current con- when my con- first contract at Liverpool had run out. And that was the only time I, I'd actually used an agent. Um, as regards to the question, would I listen, would I let an agent tell me what to do? And, and coach me down the, the road the wrong road now if I wanted to make a decision I wanted to move to a certain club regardless of the finances an agent wouldn't sway me an agent wouldn't tell me what to do and where to go an agent's there to get the best possible deal for you he's not there to tell you what the best possible club is for your footballing career financially yes if an agent said to me you can go down the road for 20 grand a week more but it was the wrong club I wouldn't do it that's my advice to youngsters now. Don't, don't always listen to an agent. You've got your own mind. Agents are there to help you financially, nothing else. Career-wise, you've got to choose them decisions yourself. You've got to make your own decisions. There's lots of occasions you don't need agents. I, I, I'm, now you do probably more because there's, there's gazillions in the game. But players are a millionaires now in one contract, one three- and four-year contract. And, and yes, I, I, I agree and I understand and I get it that players do need agents for that, for the investment side of it. But in terms of the football inside of it, they, they don't need them. And, and 
in terms of guiding your career. Not at all. But hey, that's that's the way I, I, I felt. Maybe a change if it was in this day and age. But I'd only let them deal with my finances. I'd only let them go in to see the chairman or the manager. And, and sometimes you feel a bit embarrassed to say, no, that's not enough money. I want another 10 grand a week. And if your agent does that for you, then it saves that little bit of an embarrassment and a one-on-one with your manager or your chairman. That's where it's probably, it comes in as, as a good thing, but certainly not in terms of my development as a player moving forward. No. It's interesting that, yeah, from Steve talking about the not having any football input from the agent in terms of the career path. Um, what about yourself? Did you ever find yourself, you know, under the influence or find yourself in, in sort of, opposition to what the, your agent was advising you as in your career? Well, I'm a bit like Steve. I never had an agent. And the only agent I ever came across was the same guy as Steve just mentioned, Dennis Roach. Uh, when I signed for Liverpool from Ajax, uh, when I signed the contract, he was in the office. But he was representing Ajax. He'd been given permission by Ajax to sell me to a, to a club in England. And then when I signed the contract, and we left the office and we got outside. And Dennis said, would you like to sign with us? And I said, no, I don't feel any need for an agent. The only thing I will say, and this is where I differ from Steve, had I agreed to have an agent, I also think I would have allowed that agent to make decisions on my behalf if I'd agreed to have one. I didn't. Uh, but when Ian Russ went to uh, Juventus in, 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 in the mid-80s, uh, I actually went with Ian to meet an agent, a guy called Boyer Lance. And I, that's why I always thought that if you have an agent, like him, he would rule your life. Because that's the way he was. And I, that's why I kind of stayed away from him. But, but, I, but I must add that had I ever agreed to have an agent, I think I would have allowed them then to get on with it and, and, and do their jobs. But I never did. So a bit like Steve, Dennis Rhodes represented Ajax when I came to Liverpool. Beyond that, I never used any. I didn't know that, Jan. That's interesting. Didn't know that. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's a factor. Absolute fact, yeah. Shows the times have changed. Um, let's let's be honest; it really does. Right, we've got more to crack on through, and I can see about fifteen odd minutes left for us, gents. So let's try and get through as many of these as we can. This is from Simon Brundish, who is a, an AI regular, and he's wondering who was your favourite midfield partner. And I'll, I'll bounce that one off both of you, Steve. I'll start with you. Who was your favourite person to play in the midfield with? Um, well, Jan was a magnificent player, I've got to say that. Not just because he's sitting there. Uh, he was different, obviously, a lot different to me. I used to do the work and he used to do the football and stuff. Uh, I used to score the goals and he used to just sit there and supply. We had a different we had a different mixture and, and you need a different mixture when you're in midfield. Someone who goes forward, someone who sits, someone who does passing, someone who, who gets forward without the ball. Uh, Jan was the biggest or oh, the best player on the ball you, you could you could think of. If you need anybody on the ball, uh, composure, who could pick a pass out, it was Jan. The other side of it, if you need someone to run, tackle and stuff, it was probably me. So it's it's about not so much the best player, it's about what who complements each other. Like Jordan Anderson at the moment, he's not for me, he's not the best player in the world as a midfield player, but he's certainly the most effective player in recent times. In the past two years, he's been the most effective player Ronnie Whelan was was very, very effective. You know, you pick and choose when you run forward, who stays, who goes, and you've got to find that balance. But certainly, we had, we had um, sensational midfield players, and Jan was part of that, and so was Ronnie Whelan. So it had been interesting to have had the three of us playing. We didn't have that three in midfield at the time. It was always a two. 
Sometimes we played five at the back or three at the back, and we, we, we had the wide players. But very rarely did we play three in midfield, and it'd have been interesting to see that that maybe they're only sitting as the as, as the holding midfield player, and 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 Jan as the playmaker, and me as the up and down and getting in between people. That would have been a fascinating sort of three players in there that would have complemented, in my opinion, would have complemented a, a perfect midfield. Nice. Uh, Jan, same question to yourself. I mean, if you want to take it away from Liverpool, you can, but your favourite midfield partner over the years? No, no. I mean, I think if, if, if you look at it, I always find this really interesting that season 87-88, we signed John Barnes to play wide on the left and that's where Ronnie Whelan plays. Uh, so then instantly you think, what's going to happen to Ronnie? Pre-season, I, I break my metatarsal. Uh, which I'm then out of the game for three months. But while I'm out with my broken metatarsal, I break it again. So I miss the first six months of the season. In the meantime, Ronnie Whelan moves centrally and plays with Steve McMahon. Uh, and ever since then, whenever I used to come back, they were always the two first choice and I could then play in a number of other positions. So that's the interesting bit, isn't it? But I have to be honest that the best football I ever played at Liverpool was 85-87, two seasons, 33 goals. And my midfield partner was Steve McMahon. And we complimented each other really, really well. I know that Macca, under his breath, would, would moan about me and go, is he going to fucking, you know, whatever. But that was just the way he was. <laughs> but I, I think as a partnership, you know, or from my point of view, is that if I have to pick anyone, and don't forget later on, they were, the younger ones came to likes of Jamie Redknapp and whatever. But, you know, Steve was a, was a super player and he, he was well suited to the way that I wanted to play. So, yeah. Not because he's here, but I think it's pretty straightforward. I'm going to stay with you for the next question. This is from Chris Thexton. Uh, Jan, if you know, we know you, both of you gents have uh, done spells in charge of teams. How would you, Jan, have dealt with Trent and Robbo if you were playing against them today? What way would you set up against them? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a real problem, isn't it? I mean, teams try all sorts of different... Uh, formations and some teams decide to go with three centre halves and, and 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 two wing backs so they can really squeeze up. Uh, but I don't think that solves the problem. You know, I think Carlo Ancelotti to a certain extent with with Napoli uh, had, had had found a, a weakness where he plays almost like Liverpool with two wide men who almost stay up and in behind. Salzburg did it in the second half at Anfield uh, when we beat them four or three. So I think you've got to be brave and you've got to ask your wide men to stay up, stay at the other side. Don't don't run back with, with, with Trent and, 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 and Robbo. But it's a real problem because on a good day, and it's a bit like going back to our day, on a good day, what can the opposition do? You know, it's not it's nothing to do with tactics or whatever. On a good day, sometimes you, you just can't do anything. And I would say that on a good day against Robbo and Trent, you've got a problem. Uh, so I think sometimes you've got to fight fire with fire and you've got to be as brave as you can. But to do that, you need quality. And not everybody has enough quality, so it's a, it's a real conundrum, but it's fascinating. Steve, interesting question, that, isn't it? What, have you any extra thoughts on how you could combat the threat of our two wing-backs? It, it's interesting, but the fact that you've got three world-class strikers, the top three, that takes a lot of pressure off the two forwards because teams are so busy trying to worry about your top three. So it's all about a team. And, and when the top three are so influential, then it gives license for the two fullbacks to actually get a bit more space and a bit more room. So if you had, say, an ordinary, an average top three, then you could you could afford then to push tight on your two fullbacks. But you can't do that against Liverpool because there's five, there's four or five different players who will cause you problems. The only way you do it 
for me is getting between your fullback and your centre half. If you can get a player in between and be brave enough to, to keep them there, players, two players in between your two fullbacks and centre halves, then that gives your centre halves and your fullbacks a problem because the centre half doesn't want your fullback to go out of position because then he's vulnerable in the space behind. And the more space behind, the more vulnerable you become. Now, I'd be, I'd be saying to my players, be brave and stay. Stay as high as you can. Hopefully, when the ball breaks down, that's where the problem lies, is back into the space where, you, where, you've, where fullbacks have come from. And that, that, that is the way to do it. Be brave. And it's, it's, it's strengths and weaknesses. What are, what are the fullbacks' strengths? Robo's strengths are going forward, crossing. Trent, going forward, crossing. So you don't, you're brave enough to keep them back the way, get them that way so they're not in a position all the time. They're worried about you and you're not worried about them. That's, that's the only way you can probably negate that problem. Let me stay with you, Steve, for a, a question from Mike Nevin, who has actually asked Jan this question in the past. So I'm going to ask it to you now. Uh, was the shadow of Graham Souness a problem in terms of kind of being seen as someone who's you know, partially there to help fill the boots, if you like? Was that ever a, an issue for you? Nope, not, not one issue. I could have joined Liverpool straight away from Everton to Liverpool and I would have been directly taken Souness's place because he went to Sampdoria. Uh, I went to Villa for different different reasons. But when the chance came about for me to join Liverpool a second time, I didn't hesitate. And Souness never came into my, my head. Souness was a magnificent player. One, nobody can deny that. He was, a, he was a top, top player. And I was given the number 11 shirt straight away as soon as I went to that football club. And, and if Liverpool had a way of just giving you the number that, that they wanted, you, you modelled themselves on other players. As a youngster at Liverpool, you, you were told, play like Kenny Douglas, play like Graham Souness, play like um, Keegan. And there was a number of players in the reserves at Liverpool many years ago who, who actually were, were, were models for, for the first-team players. And I never felt under pressure at all to, uh, with uh, taking Sui's shirt and for me to try and be like a Souness because nobody is alike. You know, everyone's different. I had different attributes than Sui. Um, and I, as I say, I was confident as, as a player and I believed in my own ability. The more you try and be like somebody then the more you're not going to be like somebody and you're going to put yourself off your own game. So I just tried to play. Liverpool signed me for who I was, not for who they wanted me to be. And as long as I kept doing what I needed to do, then that was good enough for me and it worked for me for almost seven years. I'll say it did. Um, we've got a question here, Jan, from Dan Kennett, another contributor from AI. And Dan is saying the 88 team was one of our best ever. Um, and at that time, Milan were dominant in Europe with Hullet and Rijkaard, Van Basten, and Baresi. Um, I know we've spoken about this before, but you might revisit the, the topic for us. Um, would you have fancied uh, our chances of a European Cup final or a European Cup win in that era, you know? Um, uh, you know, the, the, the great 88 team of ours, what do you reckon? I would have certainly fancied another European Cup final uh, in between, sort of between 85 and 88. And then, of course, along came that great AC Milan team, who, in fairness, had a little bit of everything. They were flexible in the way that they could play. They had real ability. And also, they weren't a proper dour Italian team. They had some really, really good attackers as well. You mentioned Turin and Van Basten and 
and Gullet. Uh, so they were an exceptional team. But it's also one of those teams where you kind of go that this was our time. Late 80s was our time at Liverpool and we never got a chance to play against them. So you, you think, I would, have, I would have enjoyed that. It would have been very, very difficult to, to get the bets off them, but I would have enjoyed that. Because as a player, it's what you want, isn't it? You want to play against the best. That's individual as well as, as, as team. So, yeah, I would have really looked forward to playing against them uh, because it was one of those teams that Italian football, I don't know when it was around that time, but Channel 4 used to broadcast some of them and used to watch it. And, of course, Kenny Dalglish, who was massively into football in mainland Europe, was a massive fan of that Milan team. So, yeah, I'd have liked to have tried my hand at them. Steve, you were playing in the same team in the same era. Obviously, you know, we all know the the, the story why. Um, but just on a purely football um, front, did it sort of stick in the craw a bit? Were you looking at those European competitions and thinking we could have done that? We, we you know, we were definitely as good as these guys. Of course. It, it, it's only natural you do that because you, you, you want to test yourself against the best. And we were the best at the time. No two ways about it. And, and funny enough, uh, Milan coaches and staff came over to watch how we played for a period of time. I think it was a week or so and he spent time at Melwood watching us train to see how we went up because we weren't able to play in European competition and Milan were, AC Milan were and, and they were dominant and and I don't know what they learned from Melwood because it wouldn't have been much because we didn't we didn't <laughs> much way. It was like, it was very basic but everyone says we didn't do any tactics and, and training wasn't as as uh, scientific as, as most uh, teams now. Rubbish. We used to play small-sided games, but conditioned to one touch to two touch. Just you can't you can't pass back. You can you've got to run forward once you've passed it. So everything was conditioned into games. They don't do it now. Uh, and so when people say we didn't do nothing in training, rubbish. Up total rubbish. That's that's disingenuous to the coaches and to the Liverpool staff because we did we did an awful lot in a short period of time. Um, and AC Milan, but I don't know, maybe took something out of that, seen that. Um, but yeah, probably the biggest regret of one of them would have been not to have played in in the European Cup. I played in, in the UEFA, uh, obviously when we got back into the, into, into Europe, uh, and it was fantastic. European night at Liverpool was amazing. But yeah, to compete against the best at the time when we were the best uh, would have been sensational. It would have been, I think we'd have probably won it maybe another couple of times. Yeah, I have to say I agree. Um, I've got one question that, and listen, apologies to the, the people I didn't get around to the questions for, but we're trying to keep to a schedule here. And I've got one that I'm going to b- bounce off both of you to finish this up as our last question. And it comes in from Adrian Hendrick, and he's wondering, who did you learn most from in your professional career? So I've just been speaking to Steve, so I'll start with you on this one, Jan. Who was it that you learned most from over the course of your professional career? I think it, you, you know you develop and you shape as as, as a player in your younger days. Uh, so so back home in Denmark, uh, and Denmark at the time was at the real forefront of coaching. One of the first countries to have coaching qualifications, and we had some really good coaches. Uh, and then when I got introduced into the first team, we had an Austrian coach called Ernst Netzuka. He was sort of the, the first one that left a real impression on me. Things that he said, he said, "Why don't you try this? Why don't you do this?" Uh, he was very, very impressive. The guy at Ajax, Artem Moss, for two years, he sort of got lost a little bit in, you know, Cruyff being there and he couldn't really be the main man and whatever. Uh, so I would probably have to say that when Kenny Douglas became the manager in, 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 in 1985, was probably 
the next time. Well, the first time as a professional football, I took the next step in, in, in my career. The level I was at, I was probably at from when I turned part-time in Denmark in 1981 to, to 1985. But then when Kenny came, it was sort of the next step. And it wasn't, Steve mentioned before, it wasn't a lot of one-on-one coaching. It was just little things he would say to you that would make you improve uh, on, on the pitch. So I would probably have to say that, you know, as a professional footballer, I played my best football on the Kenny. So I think I'll have to give the, Kenny, uh, the, the King a lot of credit for that. Nice. And Steve, for yourself, um, the biggest influence, the person you learn most from? Um, I think, yeah, I'll come on to Kenny, but <clears throat> I think starting out in my career, Everton, Colin Harvey was was sensational as a coach. He was sensational, and I admired him as a midfield player. And he was the author of one touch in training. We used to do one touch and two touch, and he was the master of, of seeing a picture, having a picture. Which is, it's like playing pool. So you've got to know what you do, you're do. going to do second time. Not the first ball you pot. It's the second ball you're about to pot. So you've got a picture in your mind, not when it comes to you, about what I'm going to do next. And Colin Harvey always taught me that have a look, have a picture, comes to you, you know exactly what you're doing with. Around the corner, one touch or two touch when, when you need be. And he taught me a lot of stuff and a lot of things that, that put me and put me in the right direction sowed the seed for me and gave me the fundamentals of being a, a professional footballer. The fitness, uh, there's no doubt that he was a fitness fanatic. But I went on to, to do better things. And, and when you get to another level, then you need guidance and you need to go on to, to somebody to, to teach you uh, a different way of playing. And certainly Kenny Douglas, he wasn't a coach by any stretch of the imagination. He was a manager. And there's a massive difference between a manager and a coach. Massive. Kenny was a manager, but he was a, he was a, a magnificent teacher in, in the little things. And Jan spoke about I remember when we used to play against Everton, because he studied the game so much in videos and watched. He used to say, if you ever get into a situation when you're one-on-one with, with Neville Southall, he always leaves his near post. You go one-on-one with him, He'll always leave the post that he's closest to and go the other way. Bear that in mind. And you know what? It's incredible. Every time we went through, that stuck in my mind. He'd always leave his near post. He'd always leave the post and dive this way. And all he'd do is dink it over that way. And it, it, it's amazing how many times it happens. And that them little details, uh, attention to detail, makes you a player. It, it really does. He used to scream in training, don't bounce the ball in. Jan, I'll tell you, if you pass it to someone, don't bounce it in because he's got to spend a couple of seconds trying to control it first before he then decides what he's going to do with it. If you play it in at a certain pace, you know then I can do it first time. So that was an awesome appreciation of the man receiving the ball. Now, it sounds like a technical coaching jargon or coaching phrase, but it, it's simple. Appreciate the ball, the pass that you're playing to somebody. It's no good playing a pass to somebody who's left-footed, to Barnsley, on his right foot. Because he's going to have to take another few seconds to get it onto his left foot. So you've got to be clever enough to, to be aware of, of strengths and weaknesses with people. And, and they're the little things that, that, that Kenny taught me and, and just thinking about the game a little bit more in detail. I love it. And I hope everyone else who's watching and listening has loved this. So that 
little nuggets that we've gotten from you two gents this evening. In a minute, you lucky viewers are going to have the Ragamuffins doing their Ginny Wijnaldum song, so stay tuned for that. But before we go, I should, and I need to thank very much Steve McMahon and Jan Mulby for their fantastic contribution this evening. It's been an absolute pleasure, gents. Thanks very much. Cheers. Yeah, thank you, Trevor. We've enjoyed it. And to everybody who's listening, make sure you enjoy the rest of the evening and have a little drink to celebrate. We might not have won it yet, but it'll happen very soon. Don't worry. Thanks, everybody. It's been a pleasure. Be safe. And I'm having a little drink for you anyway. <laughs> Good night. Good night and God bless. Take care, folks. Bye-bye. Network.